1: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Monitor Monday. We have a great deal of news to report this morning as we begin with the sixth week of Ipsalooza. More on that later in the broadcast. In the meantime, the backlash continues against the CMS proposed changes to e reimbursement. And among those specialists commenting on the proposed changes are podiatrists. Reporting its developing stories, Dr. Jeffrey Learman. He is representing the American Podiatric Medical Association. And speaking of E&M proposed changes, how could those changes impact your bottom line? Senior health analyst Frank Cohen has done the math, and he's going to report the results later in this broadcast. In other news, Prime Healthcare has agreed to pay $65 million to resolve allegations of wrongdoing. Nationally recognized whistleblower, Attorney Mary Inman is standing by in London with the details. Healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. And for the latest news on the Medicaid racks, we're going to check in with J. Paul Spencer. Well, we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds
0: here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all.
2: You know, I've whined before about how the importance given to the inpatient admission order makes absolutely no sense. It's not an order for a medication or a test where if it's transcribed incorrectly, the patient could be physically harmed. The admission order is different. It's for payment and simply a way to determine if the hospital care will be paid by DRG or APC. So why all the fuss? Because CMS says so. And When CMS says something, we must listen. And when in 2013, as part of the 2014 IPPS rule, they said the admission order needs authentication prior to discharge, we listened. And many hospitals self-denied simply because of the lack of the authentication. A perfectly good admission with no revenue because of the absence of one click by a physician. When the MAX and QAO started the two Midnight Probe and Educate audits, that was the first thing they did. They looked for the admission order, then the date and time of the authentication of that order. No authentication prior to discharge meant an automatic technical denial with no way to appeal. So for four years, inpatient admissions, inpatient admissions that met every other requirement were denied simply because of that authentication. But as you know, CMS has fixed that as of October 1st. The authentication prior to discharge will no longer be a requirement. Now, why did CMS change this rule? Well, as CMS themselves said, quote, when we finalized the admission order documentation requirements in past rulemaking guidance, it was not our intent that admission order documentation requirements should by themselves lead to the denial of payment for medically necessary and reasonable inpatient stay. Unfortunately, they did not tell that to the max of the QIOs. In fact, the QIOs were in regular contact with CMS discussing their their audit results, so that means CMS must have known that there were many of these denials. Which leads me to the point of the segment. While we wait for October 1st to arrive, the QIOs continue to audit short stays and deny for lack of timely authentication. There is no reason for them to wait till October 1st. They should stop these denials immediately. When CMS said it was never their intent, that means for the last four years, even though their manual and guidance stated it was a requirement, in their eyes, those denials should not have occurred. So if they're admitting now that the M- MACs and QAOs misinterpreted their intents, why should we wait another two months for these denials to stop? Now, I don't expect a reversal of all such denials over the last four years or even an apology, but I think the least the QOs could do would be to stop enforcing it now. I'd also suggest hospitals that have these denials and are awaiting their education to discuss this with the QIO during the call and ask them to read CMS's words and overturn their denials. Now, I'm sure we're not talking about a lot of cases, but even one case denied after CMS said this to me is one
1: too many. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest news on the Medicaid racks, is Monitor Monday National correspondent, Jay Paul Spencer. Good morning, Paul.
2: Good
3: morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Regular listeners to this program know that I have been documenting the birth uh, adolescence and maturity of the Medicaid RAC program from its very beginning. Uh, the life cycle of the Medicaid RAC, if we are to believe, believe the uh, latest two state plan amendments that have been uh, filed button to uh, CMS, is probably closer to the fruit fly than it is to the human being, but uh, I thought I'd share a couple of updates that have come in over the last uh, few weeks with regard to the Medicaid RAC program in two states. With regard to the state of Oklahoma, as of April 1st, 2018, CMS has granted them a a discontinuation of the recovery audit period and recovery audit contract for a period of two years. Uh, from uh, April 1st of 2018. So until uh March 31st of 2020, there will be no Medicaid RAC program in the state of Oklahoma. Again, this may be a function of the fact that uh, Oklahoma, being a fairly rural state, does not have a very heavy Medicaid uh, population and therefore more than likely does not have enough for a Medicaid RAC uh, program to come into existence in that particular state. One interesting state that came forward was uh, the other state that I'm about to speak of, and that is the state of Missouri. Uh, Those who have been regular listeners to the program know that the state of Missouri actually was the first state in the country to have a Medicaid RAC uh, contractor up and running uh, at the uh, effective date. Uh, They were the first one to sign a contract. Well, now as it turns out, CMS has granted a uh, waiver for a Medicaid RAC program beginning on January 1st of this year and running for a two-year period. Now, the reason for this is it, the focus of the Medicaid RAC in that state uh, from the very beginning, a lot of it had to do with credit balances. And Missouri decided to take a little bit of a different tack and hire a different contractor to handle those Medicaid uh, credit balances. Uh, they contracted with HMS, who was a wide-ranging Medicaid RAC, uh contractor in many states, to handle credit balance activities. And this was uh, previously handled by Cognisanti, who was the uh, Medicaid RAC contractor for a short period of time in the state of Missouri. So for the next two years, Missouri is going to uh, rely on HMS to look at their credit balance uh, reports and uh, perform audits on those credit balances in that state. Uh, as other updates for the Medicaid RAC program come in, I'll be happy to report them to you. And uh, with that, I'll throw it back to Chuck.
1: Thanks, Paul, very much. That was Monitor Monday National Correspondent, J. Paul Spencer. Paul is a senior health care consultant with Doctors Management. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Frank Cohen, David Glazer, Mary Inman, and our special guest, Dr. Jeffrey Learman. This is Monday. It's August the 20th. It's the six-week of Vipalooza. It's a summer school to learn all about the inpatient prospective payment system. Final
0: rule. And this is Monitor Monday. Stand by. Are you frustrated by compliance webcasts that are simply a rehash of everything you already know? Are you looking for fresh, timely compliance content that is as relevant to your compliance team as it is to the HIM and Revenue Cycle teams? Look no further than the RAC Monitor Compliance Webcast subscription. Now you and your team can get the latest compliance and regulatory information directly from RAC Monitor, the industry's most respected source of compliance and auditing news and education. Subscribe to the Rack Monitor Educational Webcast subscription now so everyone on your team and other departments will have the latest information to stay compliant while avoiding audits and take backs. For more information and to subscribe to the Rack Monitor Educational Webcasts, click on the handout tab in today's program. We're back at a program note. The 2019 IPBS
1: final rule has been published, and now you can download a very important webcast on the changes to the inpatient physician order requirements. Now, that's a webcast by Dr. Ronald Hirsch. To download this on-demand webcast, go to the handout tab in today's Monitor Monday. And now let's check in with health attorney David Glazer and learn what's risky today. David, what's at risk?
4: Good morning, Mr. Buck. So last week, I discussed how the Medicare program is required to waive an overpayment if you're without fault. Today, I want to discuss a few follow-ups to that segment. First, a listener asked a good question. Hey, David, what manual provision supports your conclusion? Now, first, I want to emphasize an extraordinarily important legal point. The without-fault language I read came from the Medicare statute. It's always important to remember the legal hierarchy. You start with the Constitution And then you move on to the statutes, which are laws, and then regulations. Next comes the preamble uh, and the Federal Register. That's the text that describes a new rule. And finally, at the very bottom of the poll, right above, I just made it up, come the manuals. Now, the manuals don't have the force of law. As the government asserted in one brief in a case I was involved with, quote, you rely on the manuals at your own peril. That principle was repeated this past winter in what's called the Brand Memo, a memo from then Department of Justice official Rachel Brand, which instructed members of the U.S. Attorney's Office not to rely on information in the manuals when attempting to recoup an overpayment. There's only an overpayment when you violate a statute or a regulation. In other words, there doesn't need to be any reference in the manuals to this language. The fact that it's in the statutes is enough. But there is a reference in the manuals. Financial Management Manual, Chapter 3, Section 70, instructs contractors to make determinations as to whether a provider or supplier is without fault. In fact, nearly every overpayment letter you get will uh, include an analysis of whether you're without fault. That analysis is often cursory, just a sentence or two, but it's got to be in there. So contractors are required to make a determination whenever they recoup an overpayment. The other point I want to emphasize is that the statute I cited, 1870 of the Social Security Act, creates a presumption that you're without fault when the overpayment is recovered more than five years after the year in which payment was made. Now, this is an extraordinarily odd test. The five years doesn't run from the date of service. It starts when you're paid. And more uniquely, it doesn't run from the day in which you are paid but rather the year in which you were paid. So a payment that was made on January 1st, 2012, or December 31st, 2012, are treated the same way. To figure out the time limit, you could use your hand and count the five years after the year of payment. So if we're thinking about 2012, you'd say 2013, 14, 15, 16, and 17, and you'd realize that any payment that was made any time in 2012 can be recovered through the end of 2017. Now, if you're smart, you're thinking, wait a minute, what about the 60-day rule? Under the 60-day rule, you're supposed to report and return an overpayment with a look-back period of six years, and six years isn't the same as five years, and that raises an interesting question about the validity of the 60-day rule. It is an interesting question, and it's one we'll talk about next week. So Chuck, we lost a music legend last week, and while I probably should end with, I've never loved a man the way I've loved you, I instead am going to go with a song that's relevant both to the law and to compliance. Whenever you're dealing with other people, whether you agree with them or disagree with them, it's important to have R-E-S-P-E-C-T.
1: Back to you, Chuck. Thanks David, very much. I was Health Care Attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Frederickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Prime Healthcare has been in the news recently. The CEO and the organization agreed to pay $65 million to resolve allegations of wrongdoing. Here now with the details is Mary Inman. She's calling in live from London. Good morning,
5: Mary. Good morning, Chuck. Prime Healthcare, a nationwide healthcare provider that operates 45 hospitals and employs over 40,000 people, has settled allegations that 14 of its California hospitals improperly billed Medicare for admitting as inpatients patients who only required outpatient care and billed Medicare for treating more severe diagnoses than patients actually had. The company will pay just under $62 million to settle these claims, and Prime CEO Prem Reddy will personally pay over $3 million. According to the government's complaint filed last July after a six-year investigation, Prime induced physicians at 14 of its California hospitals to admit ER patients into the hospital, regardless of medical necessity. The practice allegedly lasted for over seven years. Admission into the hospital generally triggers a higher Medicare reimbursement rate than an outpatient procedure or an ER visit. Medicare only pays for services that are reasonable and necessary. According to the government, Prime's practice of admitting into the hospital patients who could have been treated in the ER violates that provision. On average, Prime's services for inpatient treatment resulted in Medicare payments of 200 to 300% higher than the payments would have been otherwise. Prime leadership, including its CEO, Prem Reddy, allegedly developed several ways of inducing physicians to admit patients, including imposing quotas for admissions onto ER physicians, decreasing physicians' ER hours if their admission rate was not high enough, telling doctors to admit to hospital any insured patient in the ER within two hours while leaving uninsured patients in the ER indefinitely. Altering nationally used admission criterion to make inpatient admissions more permissive, and terminating staff members who opposed any of these practices. In addition to boosting inpatient admissions, Prime also was accused of having upcoded or exaggerated the severity of diagnoses that the hospital was treating. Under Medicare Part A, hospitals are paid based on diagnosis related group codes which result in a lump sum payment for treating a disease or group of diseases. DRGs are then adjusted by comorbidities. Generally, the more severe a DRG is and the more severe or plentiful comorbidities are, the higher the reimbursement for Medicare. Exaggerating the severity of the DRG or of comorbidities, as Prime has been alleged to have done here, is a common type of fraud. In addition to paying the settlement amount, Prime has also entered into a corporate integrity agreement with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. The agreement requires Prime to hire an independent review organization to review the claims the company submits to Medicare. The agreement will apply for five years. The fraud was brought to light first by whistleblower Karen Bernstein, a former Prime employee who served as the Director of Performance Improvement at one of Prime's California hospitals. Ms. Bernstein will receive an award of over $17.2 million. That's it on Prime Healthcare. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks very, very much. That was nationally recognized whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary's a partner in the law offices of Constant Cannon in London. That's where she was calling in this morning. The backlash continues over the CMS pro and m changes, so much so that we continue with our series, CMS, Are You Listening?, we have two reports this morning. First, how the proposed m changes are expected to impact a provider's bottom line. Frank Cohen has that report. And then following Frank's report, we're going to hear from our special guest this morning, Dr. Jeffrey Learman. He's going to report on the reaction of podiatrists to so the proposed name changes. So we begin with Frank Cohen. Frank, what's the
6: bottom line here? By now, unless you live on Mars, I guess, pretty much anyone connected to healthcare knows that CMS is playing this major overhaul, right? The EM billing and coding model, and, and this is like a huge paradigm shift. In fact, in addition to providers, nearly every vendor that supports physician billing and coding is scrambling to try to figure out how to get their systems updated in the next few months. I've read a lot of articles, white papers, publications, a lot of great ones on RAC RAC Monitor regarding the changes, but mostly how it affects the administrative process of coding and billing. But there wasn't a lot on the financial or behavioral impact of these changes. So I wanted to address that a little bit here. Now, because I don't have access to the same data CMS has, and because they are so unexplainably slow in releasing billing data, I was forced to use the 2016 Medicare utilization data. But what I did was I took the difference between the 16 and 19 proposed RVUs, along with the number of paid events for 201 through 215, you know, new office visits and all established office visits. I multiplied the difference by the 2019 proposed conversion factor, and then I multiplied that difference by the paid utilization. So so what I ended up with was something like this. If this new proposed model had been in place in 2016, physicians would have been paid nearly a quarter of a billion dollars more than they were. And, and this, is a, this is covering a huge swing of winners and losers. There would have been some big winners, such as, and I know Dr. Learman's going to talk about it, but have, if podiatry were included in this model, they would have been the big winner, followed by dermatology and orthopedic surgery between them at about a half a billion dollars. And then there were some really big losers, like cardiology and internal medicine, seeing a reduction in payment of nearly $300 million. So, so in general, any providers that code to the right of center will see a loss. Any providers that currently code to the left of center will see a gain. And I just can't help feeling like part of this is as punitive as it is administrative. Remember that OIG report says that E&M levels have been shifting to the right for 10 years, <clears throat> and somehow this feels like it's them getting back at those physicians. Uh, but alas, due to budget neutrality, this can't happen. Because remember, Medicare can't expand or contract by more than $20 million a year. So CMS then proposed what they were going to enforce a substantial reduction in payments for 25 modified procedures to the tune of some 6.7 million RVUs, which I could not verify, by the way. But with the conversion factor of 36.05, this comes out to about $240 million. A coincidence? Uh, Maybe. But I'm not a believer in coincidences. So this then would solve the budget neutrality problem, except that CMS says they are going to use this money to subsidize some of the losses for primary care due to the E&M level changes. And if that's so, then there goes budget neutrality once again. So no matter how you look at it, this will create huge impacts, both financially and behaviorally for just about everyone. And we haven't even talked about the radical changes in work RVUs that's going to impact every provider that is part of some tip productivity-based compensation plan. Uh, Just for the record, I spoke with three medical societies. They told me that if this goes in effect on January 1, they're going to encourage their members to stop taking new Medicare patients. I know I'm usually critical of CMS, but, but I really applaud their efforts at reducing this administrative burden. My concern is that even though the concept may be valid, the implementation is fatally flawed. I mean, I hate to see podiatry, for example, be the sacrificial lamb in order to find budget neutrality. So they're talking about a complete shift in a model that's been ingrained in our billing and coding processes for 26 years, and you can't just change that overnight. So my, my point is, if you're going to look at this major change, approach it scientifically. Do some testing first. Maybe look at rolling this out next year with some sample of physicians, maybe 5,000, to get a handle on how this is going to impact billing, payments, and physician behavior. In my opinion, it's the only safe and appropriate way to go. I encourage CMS to slow down and smell the numbers. And, Chuck, that's the world according to Frank. Thanks, Rick, very much. That was Senior Healthcare Analyst Frank Cohen. Frank is the director of business
1: intelligence and analytics for doctors' management. And you can read Frank's reporting on the expected financial impact of the prosium changes on our homepage at rackmonitor.com. We continue with our second report this morning in our series, CMS, Are You Listening? One specialty in particular is weighing in on the impact of the pros changes, and that's specialty, podiatry. Here another report on how the prosium changes would impact podiatrists is Dr. Jeffrey Learman. Dr. Learman is a doctor of podiatric medicine, and today he's representing the American Podiatric Medical Association. So good morning, Dr. Learman. Welcome to the program. So how are these changes going to impact your specialty?
7: Thank you, Chuck. As Frank pointed out, podiatrists are being separated from all other physicians in the proposed fee schedule. As CMS proposes to require podiatric physicians to use new podiatrist specific EM codes, G-codes, that were developed by CMS. These G codes for podiatrists only would require the same documentation as the standard E&M codes and reimburse at a significantly lower rate than the standard E&M codes, despite representing the exact same evaluation and management services that all other physicians provide. This violates statutory language in the Social Security Act and is a dangerous precedent for all of medicine. This should concern everyone in the medical field, certainly anyone who is listening right now. Podiatrists are recognized as physicians under Medicare statute. CMS's proposals serve to provide differential payment to podiatrists with lower RVUs for the same evaluation and management services. This is going to be the most important sentence that I say on this broadcast. The Social Security Act expressly prohibits differential valuation of services paid under the physician fee schedule based on specialty. This comes from Section 1848C6 of the Social Security Act, which states the secretary may not vary the number of RVUs for a physician's service based on the specialty of the physician. Many are asking, why are they proposing to do this to podiatrists? The best answer we have so far comes from the language in the proposed fee schedule that introduces these G codes for podiatrists, It says, we propose that rather than reporting visits under general E&M codes, podiatrists would instead report visits under new G codes that more specifically value their services, more specifically value their services by lowering that value significantly. This provides a good opportunity for me to share just what the value is of the services that podiatrists provide much of the care provided by podiatrists is care that prevents pathology, care that saves limbs, saves lives, and results in significant savings to the healthcare system. This is supported by a peer-reviewed paper that demonstrated that every $1 invested in care by a podiatrist results in 9 to $13 of savings for the Medicare program. This proposal should concern every person listening. This is a departure from how CMS has historically functioned and would establish a bad and scary precedent and should beg the question, who could be next? The good news is that this is only a proposed rule, and we all have the opportunity to do two very important things. One is to submit comments to CMS. The other is to write to your congresspeople and senators. We have spoken with many of them already. They are concerned about this violation of statutory language. They do care about upholding the law. They care about health care, and they do want to hear from their constituents. So please go online. Find out who your senators are and who your congressperson is, where you live, and write to them using their website and explain the violation of Social Security statute that I described earlier, and that it is unfair to pay Different specialists differently for the same service, and that this establishes a bad precedent. And please submit comments to CMS. You can do this at regulations.gov, and there you can put into the search box 2019 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule. The fourth result down will be revisions to payment policies under the Physician Fee Schedule and other revisions to Part B. You can hit the blue button that says Comment Now, and you can explain that we all appreciate the effort to decrease documentation burden, but singling out podiatrists for separate codes with decreased reimbursement
1: is not necessary to accomplish that. Thanks, Dr. Learman. That was Dr. Uh, Jeffrey Learman. He is a doctor of podiatric medicine today. He was representing the American Podiatric Medical Association. And a program note, the new ICD-10 codes are bringing challenges that could hamper coding, billing, and ultimately your job performance. To avoid disruption, register now to attend three exclusive ICD-10 monitor webcasts are coming your way tomorrow, August 21st, the 22nd, and the 23rd. To register to attend these uh, webcasts, simply go to the handout section in today's Monitor Monday. And now the time for our Monitor Monday Q&A. And, David, let's take a look at some of the questions that come in.
4: Uh, You bet. We've got a bunch of questions. So first, uh, uh, Dr. Lerman, uh, I'm going to offer a comment and then a question for you. So my comment is just, boy, CMS has had history lately of issuing rules without actually regard to the statute. It's happened a few times. I think the 60-day rule is one of those examples, and then this is another. The question for you is, could you repeat that Social Security section again for our listeners?
7: Happy to, and I just put it into the public uh, chat section. So it is uh, from the Social Security Act, 1848, C as in Charlie, 6, 1848 C 6.
4: Thank you so much. Frank, I've got a question for you. Did your calculations take into account the new G code for primary care and E&M specialties and also the 30-minute extended visit add-on code?
6: No, it didn't. And the reason it didn't was I have absolutely no way whatsoever to calculate that. So, you know, and I don't know what the impact of that's going to be. Um, CMS, I don't think they've really done much to, to support how the overall impact, because there's a lot of interpretation in how those will be applied. And I I don't have access to that, so I didn't.
4: Dr. Lerman, another question for you. So CMS has proposed G-codes that distinguish between specialties and primary care. Do you believe that's also contrary to the Social Security Act?
7: It's a good question because one of the things we've had difficulty getting clarity on is for those G-codes, for more complex services. And while the violation of statute is very clear when it comes to podiatry, not as clear for those G-codes for more complex services because the thing that we're having a difficult time getting an answer to is whether those G-codes for more complex services are designated for the specialty
4: or for the service. Thank you so much, Dr. Limit, and thanks for joining us. Chuck, I will turn it back to you.
1: Thanks, David, very much. That's going to be a wrap for us, and we thank you so much for being with us today, and a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Frank Cohen, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Mary Inman. And our special guest, Dr. Jeffrey Learman. We thank you for starting off your week with us this morning. And we look forward to you returning next Monday for another edition of Monitor Monday. And I hope you're going to join Clark Anthony this coming Thursday when Shannon DeConnor discusses the pros and changes in her webcast. And that gets underway at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us.
0: Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.